Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the plane crash of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. But the crash is not what we're focusing on. Following the crash, 28 people were still alive, and what would soon play out would be one of the most incredible stories of survival though one which would come with many sacrifices and the hardest decision of whether to eat their deceased friends in order to survive. I'm really excited for this episode. Um, I've wanted to, I've, I've kind of always heard about this, about where they had the plane crash and then they ate people, but I, that was all I knew, really. <laughs> that, was, that was just it. Uh, and so it's been really interesting to read all about it because it is so much more complex and amazing than, than I ever realised. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start this with a slight trigger warning. Uh, I wouldn't eat during this episode. Uh, I also, you know, I won't talk much about eating people, but it comes up. So if that's not your thing, then don't listen or skip past those parts. They, they're eating their dead friends. They're not killing people. They're just, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, but yeah, trigger warning for that right at the beginning. Um, and then I've also reminded myself to uh, put my Instagram shout out here. So yes, please do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod uh, and follow or subscribe on whatever you're listening to. What do you feel you're listening to this on even? <laughs> okay. So it's October 1972 and a group of young men who made up a Uruguayan rugby team and they were all at school together. They were kind of late, late teens, early 20s, generally, in terms of how old they were. And they, yeah, had made up this this old boys rugby union team. They were due to fly from Uruguay over to Santiago in Chile in order to have a match with uh, an equivalent team over there. So they were very excited for this for this rugby match. Uh, and they were, yeah, a, a group of, of young men, all very fit uh, and, and ready, to, ready to go and play. But at this time, Uruguay didn't have the best infrastructure and the best uh, flight connections. Uh, you know, we're talking early 70s here. And so what they decided to do was the most uh, cost-effective thing for them to do would be to actually rent out an Air Force plane. Uh, So they wanted to rent out this Air Force Fairchild plane uh, and then head over in that. But in order to afford to to rent it out, they basically had to sell all of the seats in the plane because otherwise it was going to be too expensive. And uh, basically, the more the more seats they sold, the the more affordable it would be for everyone. So they sold a lot of uh, these these seats, and they sold them mainly to their friends or their family, uh, basically other people that wanted to to come and watch them play rugby. So basically, everyone on this plane knew each other, and they were all pretty connected in in one way or another. So they were going to fly across to Chile then. And if you look at it on a map, it's pretty much a straight shot over, but it does require flying over the Andes. Uh, And the Andes are obviously very tall mountains. I think we're in the Andes recently for touching the void, weren't we? Yeah. So yeah, very tall mountains, very snowy. Um, Yeah, very, very tricky to fly over in those days. And we're talking 1972, so this was ages ago in terms of, of what it was. But also, just to, to kind of keep in mind in terms of the flight infrastructure they had at the time, it was very much before this. It was even before Erebus, um, the crash we talked about a few weeks ago. But basically, 
it was a straight shot over to Chile, but the plane and the pilots had to do all the navigation themselves, which uh, is obviously tricky <laughs> and puts a lot more, a lot more ability for things to go wrong, right? If you're navigating a plane versus how they navigate today when they, they generally do know where they're going. And just to, um, because I promised my grandparents I wouldn't do an episode on plane crashes before they flew in the new year, but but this was ages ago, so I just don't think that this counts. Uh, and to give you an idea of their thoughts on the safety at the time, um, it said in the book that I read that they put the seatbelt sign on uh, when they hit the hard turbulence, but they also had to remind everyone to put out their cigarettes. So <laughs> if you're me, I can't even imagine people smoking on a plane. So it, that was they thought that was safe, which clearly it isn't. Anyway, so yeah, it's very tricky to fly across the Andes at the time, and the mountains can kind of cause these quite weird weather patterns. They can cause a lot of turbulence. Uh, we've we know this from our our mountaineering episodes. The weather can change really quickly. Uh, it can basically have its own weather systems. And so uh, the other issue they had was the plane that they were in actually couldn't fly that high so it's not like the planes today where they can just kind of do a straight shot straight over the top uh the plane couldn't get as high as they needed uh so it had to do basically it, it kind of had to do like a u shape uh in order to fly over some of the shorter mountains in, in kind of a safer area and then turn back uh to get to where they were going so the plane sets off the first time, but actually it decides to, to land early in a place called Mendoza because uh, the, the weather's just really bad and they, they don't think it's it's safe to, to travel over the Andes. So they stop there uh, and, and spend the night in Mendoza before they are due to head off again. So the next day, head off again. Uh, weather wasn't great still, but obviously they really wanted to get there. So they decided to go anyway. Uh, and they weren't really able to navigate visually as to what they were seeing. So it was very much navigation through their uh, instruments and, and, and navigating that way rather than being able to see where in the Andes they were. We don't know exactly what happened in terms of the crash itself, but basically... It, it's similar to Erebus. The planes, the pilots thought that they were somewhere where they weren't. Uh, they thought they were in an area with much lower mountains. They, yeah, they just totally got their navigation wrong and had no idea where they were, basically. Uh, and so they started descending in a place where they shouldn't have started descending. And the plane hit the side of the mountain. Uh, and so what happened is that when the plane hit, it lost its wings uh, and then it kind of lost the back and the tail of the plane as well. Uh, and so a few people who were at the back kind of got sucked out and, and were killed straight away. But actually the main body of the plane uh, stayed intact and it hit the side of the mountain and basically kind of slid down uh, until it, it, yeah, it slid for almost 700 meters uh, and then it finally came to rest on a mountainside so it kind of hit like a wall of ice and and stopped and so yeah the the fact that that it kind of came down intact is pretty pretty impressive uh, and of the 45 people who were on the flight uh, 33 were still alive when the plane came to a stop so when uh, th this first happened, obviously all of the people on the plane were just in total shock as to what had just happened, uh, which I can understand. <laughs> I think I would also be very shocked if that happened to me. And they, yeah, they just couldn't, couldn't believe what was happening. They kind of just stumbled about panicking. Uh, and obviously in this first, this first few hours, everything was chaos. Uh, there was lots of 
uh, you know, equipment everywhere, things were broken, uh, and some of the 33 were very heavily injured. So there were some people that were trapped beneath some of the chairs because the chairs kind of collapsed into each other. Uh, some were unconscious still, uh, and some had like quite heavily broken, broken legs, broken bones, that type of thing. And they were two medical students on board, Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zubino. But they were very, it's still very early in their medical career. So, uh, you know, they'd only been studying for a couple of years and pr- probably similar to now, the first kind of years are, are very much theoretical. So they, they knew some, some things, um, but they weren't obviously doctors, but they did try and, and go around and give as much first aid as they could. But they also were very limited in terms of what they could do and and the equipment they had, medication they had, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, they could just do things to stabilize people, you know, tie tie things around wounds, that type of thing. But they, but yeah, they they tried as as much as they could. And basically within that first day, uh, five more people would die uh, due to that, due to the injuries that they had from, from the crash itself. Uh, And this would include both pilots. So one of the pilots was actually alive when it, when it crashed, but uh, died pretty soon after. But yeah, that was, that was tricky in terms of the pilots dying because they had, the people hoped that the pilots would have the best kind of knowledge in terms of where they were and also in terms of how they potentially could could raise uh, raise attention in order to get help. So this is where basically you kind of get one issue after the other, right? So the first issue was the crash and the chaos and, and the kind of injuries. Once that was sorted uh the the main issue was the cold. So they were very high up on the on the Andes mountains at this point. And so they were very much freezing, <laughs> which you can understand. And they'd obviously come from somewhere that was relatively uh, a little bit warmer anyway. And so they huddled together in the kind of wreckage of the fuselage uh, and, and did their best to, to remove the, uh, you know, the chairs and the debris and stuff so that they actually had some space in order to in order to sleep. Uh, and they kind of squashed, squashed in all together. Uh, to try and keep warm and try and sleep but it sounds terrible because it was a very small space obviously when you're sitting uh, you take up a lot less space than when you're lying down uh, obviously there were the ill people that needed a reasonable amount of space in order for them to 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 rest uh, so yeah they just had not a lot of room uh, and basically they just said that you know as soon as one person moved basically everyone woke up uh, or if anyone wanted to wanted to get out and go to the loo or anything it was just an absolute disaster so yeah it was, sounds like a very uncomfortable uncomfortable space for them but they, even in the fuselage and even kind of huddled up, it was still really cold. Uh, and so they, over time, worked to kind of block off the, the big holes that were in the, in the sides of the, of the wreck in order to try and keep it a little bit more windproof. Uh, and they also took the seat covers off uh, in order to try and make some basic blankets. Sorry, slight interlude there with the doorbell going. It's like working from home, this kind of constantly, constantly people arriving. Anyway back talking about the cold so yes they made these kind of basic blankets they tried to sew these seat covers together they took like clothes off the people that died already to try and and try and get warmer but yeah it it was a very very miserable time (laughs) and so at this point we still have 28 people uh, and it's quite difficult for me to go through all of them uh, in some of the references I have. Uh, they do cover 
actually everyone who was there, which I will reference, but uh, hard to cover 28 people in in a short podcast episode. Uh, But there are a few that I will talk about. I've already talked about the the medical students so far, but there was another uh, man called Nando Pereira. And he actually, when the plane crashed, he uh, smashed his head into the seat in front of him uh, and and was in a coma for, for three days. But actually, when he woke up after this coma, he was he was pretty all right, which is pretty amazing. But the sad thing was, is that when he woke up, he was actually traveling with his mum and his sister, uh, but his mum had died in the crash uh, and his sister was alive, but had kind of very deadly injuries and so was dying. Uh, and so he spent the the beginning of this really trying to, to save her, try and keep her warm, which is, that was really tragic, uh, but she would uh, eventually die on day eight from her injuries. So we've got the crash, we've got the cold, uh, but the next issue was thirst. So they were surrounded by snow, um, but I think we talked about this in another episode. Drinking snow actually is not easy uh, because it requires a lot of energy for you to melt the snow and to to manage your internal body temperature. So actually uh, drinking snow basically dehydrates you. It's It's not something that you should do. Uh, and so they were obviously surrounded by snow, but had no way of of kind of drinking it. And so they tried a few different methods. They tried like putting the snow in bottles and shaking the bottles, but that again took lots of energy of them to to melt it. Uh, and so yeah, they were a little bit stuck. And they didn't have we'll talk about this when it came to food, but they didn't have much liquids with them. They had some wine because um, of course they did uh, which they drank pretty quickly uh, and so yeah they were very getting going to be suffering from dehydration but eventually what they found was they had pulled all the seats out of the fuselage and then they had pulled the seats apart and what they realized was that on the back of each sheet of each seat was this like sheet of like a, like a metallic sheet uh, which was kind of used to keep the seat upright and so what they realized was that if they could take these metallic sheets and kind of turn them into funnels then what they would do is they'd spread a, a thin layer of snow on on the sheet uh, and then thankfully the sun uh, would reflect off the metallic and actually melt it and then they could collect that into the wine bottles uh, which they put underneath the funnel uh, so that was very helpful that they'd, they'd figured that out and that meant that they had a way of drinking uh, and it basically then became a job for a certain number of them to do it every every day. Food was then the next big problem. So they've, they've finally got uh, something to drink, they're finally not freezing, but food was, they knew food was always going to be an issue from the start. Uh, it wasn't a plane that was stocked with food. Uh, it wasn't, you know, an in-flight service type of plane. Uh, so when they took into account what they had, they had eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. So, yeah, they didn't have a lot, basically. Uh, And like I said, they actually necked a lot of the wine very early on out of kind of desperation from from the crash themselves. And the thing is, is that when they first crashed, obviously they thought that 
they were going to be rescued really soon. So as soon as they crashed, they were like, right, all we've got to do is, you know, survive, you know, a a day, two days, uh, because as soon as we have crashed, they're going to send out planes looking for us and then they're going to come and find us and then we're going to be rescued. And what happened was is that they did initially kind of note a few planes flying ahead uh, and they kind of ran out and waved their hands and all that kind of thing. But they just didn't really know whether any of them had, had actually seen them. And so they just didn't really know what was going on with this. But especially in the early days, they were constantly hoping that rescue was was just around the corner. There was uh, a man called Marcelo Perez, and he was the rugby team's captain. And so he took a leadership role in the group at this time uh, and worked really hard to to keep the spirits up of the team. And he originally took on that role of of divvying out the food. So he did a ration of the food every day. Uh, So every day you might just get like a spoonful of jam or a square of chocolate. And so that kind of kept them going for a little while. And because they thought that rescue was coming, that was okay. They could could go a week or or however long without, without eating very much. But obviously the days passed, there was no rescue in sight and they were kind of hitting this point of of real starvation and there were no resources near them. So where they were on the mountain, they were so high up that it wasn't really home to, it wasn't home to any animals, there wasn't any plant food, anything like that. Uh, And they couldn't really walk anywhere either because of the time of year when they had crashed. And we talked about this in Touching the Void. The the snow they were on was so powdery that it was just really hard to, to move and navigate. As soon as they tried to step, they basically fall like thigh, thigh deep into the snow. So just the energy expenditure in terms of walking anywhere was so high that they, they just had no hope in terms of like scavenging or, or finding food. So they kind of continued on not eating much and and waiting for rescue. And soon after the crash, uh, a little bit, a few days later, they found a small transistor radio and they managed to actually tune it in. So they managed to to be able to receive radio uh, by fashioning an aerial. And actually, once they had done this, after a week or so, they tuned into the radio and they actually then heard that the official search for them had been called off. And that was obviously a very hard moment for all of them because they had been really like riding on this, on on someone coming to rescue them. Uh, But they knew as soon as they'd heard that on the radio that actually they were there by themselves. No one was coming for them. Uh, They had to survive and then they had to, someone was going to have to walk out of there uh, and find help. This was very hard, like a hard time, obviously, like mentally. I can't even imagine that to then hear that on the radio and be like, oh, no. But I think that it was in a way good because it kind of spurred action on and it influenced them to start making decisions and doing things. So once they, they did that, they did start doing some training walks. Uh, and so what they learned was that they could kind of fashion like snowshoes out of the cushion covers. And so they went kind of walking up in the mountains around them to see what they could find. Uh, but they, it said that they went up uh, on the kind of mountain above where the plane was and they kind of looked down at the plane. And actually, as soon as they did that, they totally understood how <laughs> they hadn't been spotted because uh, the plane itself was white. And so it just it just totally blended in so well with the snow. It was just almost impossible to see them. So we're at the point now, the food's run out. And they know no one's coming for them and they 
were very, very hungry. And I, I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this debate later, but I think what they did was very reasonable. But basically, they had the bodies of all the dead people around them and the, they were frozen uh, because it was obviously so cold where they were. So the, the bodies were still very intact. And after the food ran out, the kind of thought of eating the bodies started to enter their minds. Uh, but as you can understand, especially at this beginning time, it was just a never-ending debate. Uh, should should we eat them? Should we not eat them? Is that, I don't know, it's, it's a horrible dilemma, right? What, what should they do? So they got together and they had kind of a, a big group meeting to kind of decide what they wanted to do. And to some, it made it made perfect sense. They were fine with it. They were like, yep, we've got to eat these bodies because that is what we need to do in order to survive. And, and I want to survive. And, and that's, that is what it is. But to others, it was just totally incomprehensible. And they couldn't even, just couldn't even consider it. They debated it back and forth over quite a long time. But eventually what kind of swayed them was that they were kind of saying to each other that if they were to die whilst they were out there, then they would be very happy to kind of sacrifice their body in order to keep the rest of the, the group alive. And they, I think that really helped because I think thinking of it in that way, they knew that their friends would probably make that same decision uh, because they knew that they would do that for their teammates. And so they thought that their friends would do that as well. Uh, so with that, they were like, right, okay, I think we need to start eating them. Uh, and so eventually, Knessa went out with a piece of glass and he cut a matchstick piece off uh, and then was the first to eat it. Uh, and then the others followed. Some some really couldn't do it. Some really couldn't keep it down uh, and didn't didn't eat a lot, kind of only ate a tiny bit in order to in order to to sustain themselves uh some took quite a long time in order to do that but eventually the the group was really religious and so what they did to eventually kind of convince some of the others who who hadn't been willing to eat it was they put it in a very religious con context uh in terms of the eucharist and you know jesus giving his body uh in communion and and thinking that this was similar that they had kind of done done the same way and so it was okay in in terms of a, a religious context and so eventually everyone got involved um, and everyone started eating the other people that had had died they, it was obviously like very disgusting, um, but I can, you know, they were absolutely starving, uh, but they eventually they kind of found ways of making it a bit more palatable. So they kind of dried it out and they occasionally would create some fires to kind of cook it, but not very often. So yeah, pretty, pretty horrendous, but they did, they, a human body, especially a big rugby player does have quite a lot of meat on them, which is good. So it would last them a very long time, uh, but they did still ration it out. Uh, and in some of the books, it goes into a lot of detail about what they ate and how they ate it and all this kind of stuff. I'm not going to go into that now. If you want to read about it, I'll put some links. Uh, but basically they were, yeah, they, they, they made the choice. They had to do what they had to do to survive. They were eating, eating the bodies. So finally, uh, they were, now that they had some food, they could actually start to regain some strength because they just got so weak. Because if you think about not only like they were freezing, so they were using loads of energy to keep, keep themselves warm. Uh, it took energy to get water. They were very high altitude. So just as we know from our mountaineering episodes, just like moving takes so much more energy. 
So they just lost so much strength and they just couldn't really, you know, they couldn't even comprehend trying to walk out of there because they were so weak. But finally, once they started eating, uh, they knew they could they could start to rebuild that energy up and start to kind of have some hope that they could do something about it. the one thing that they they weren't lacking uh you know they were lacking food water and warmth but they had a lot of cigarettes <laughs> it's the 70s right um and so they clearly had like stacked up on um like duty free uh, and they just had like boxes and boxes and boxes of cigarettes so if you if you want to imagine it just imagine them kind of sitting around eating people and smoking excessively they had uh most of them had 10 cigarettes a day as their ration uh, to keep them keep them going and they yeah talks about how some of them could kind of um, make them last through the day but some of them you know smoked them all in the morning and then got really upset so that kept them busy anyway but sadly before they could even think about trying to to do a mission in order to get out uh the next issue hit them and so whilst they were asleep in the plane uh, an avalanche hit them and so basically the all the entire plane was pretty much totally under under snow it, it filled the fuselage and it kind of depended on where they were as to how close to the air they were to being able to get out and so some managed to get out themselves and then they managed to uh, turn around and dig their friends out but it was just really hard to to get to everyone to find them to to get to them inside uh, and those that were stuck under the snow were yeah not not in a good way but what they did so they did their absolute best to try and save as many people as they could but in this avalanche they lost another eight people so another eight people died in this avalanche uh, and that included Perez uh, their leader uh, and also Liliana who was the only woman who had been who had been alive yeah, they're really down down on numbers by this point. Uh, and this avalanche, obviously, what, well, one, it really like hurt their spirits because it's horrendous and people died. Uh, but it also really like prompted them that they had to do something soon. Like they had to get out of there because they couldn't continue living like this and they couldn't, the, the danger, you know, the mountain wanted them off, right, is what they were thinking. So soon after this, they knew they needed to start making a move. And so they made up a small group of four, uh, which included Knessa, medical student, and Burrito, who we talked about earlier. And they set out to explore. So they walked for a day and eventually they actually ended up coming up on the tail of the plane. And so once they found that, they kind of raided the suitcases, they found a bit more food, they found a lot of rum, which they drank, um, and they slept in the tail that night. However, the next night they set off, again, to kind of continue continue walking, and they tried to sleep out in the air, but it was so cold, like it was utterly freezing, and they were really scared they were just going to die from from kind of hypothermia overnight. And so after that, incident after that attempt they basically were like no we're not prepared enough to to walk out because if we do uh, we're, we're just going to end up freezing so what they did is they turned around uh, they went back to the tail 
and they decided to try their other plan, which was to get the ra- the plane radio working, uh, the radio in which they could actually uh, broadcast a message out, not just receive one like they did on their other little radio. And so they went to the tail and they took the big batteries out, which were in the tail, and they their plan was to take the batteries back to the fuselage and connect it up, but actually the batteries were so heavy that they couldn't um, and so they they left the batteries where they were in the tail and they went back up to the fuselage took out the radio and then took the radio back down to the tail and so they worked they spent ages trying to get this to work trying to get it so that it would send out a message uh, and that they could get help uh, but unfortunately it failed uh, and they just didn't they didn't know it at the time but the battery basically just wasn't the right voltage wattage voltage in order to to actually power the radio itself so they kind of would never have been able to make it work so after that after that kind of mission they knew that they they had one choice now <laughs> they had to walk out and they had to walk out they had to find a way to to be warm enough to walk out uh, and a, and a team had to leave and over the kind of days that they had been sorting this out with the tail and the, and the radio, another three people had died as a result of their injuries. So at this point, we're down just to 16 people that were left. So they got, they kind of sat down together and were like, right, we need a plan as to how we're going to get out, how we're going to walk out uh, and how we're going to manage this cold. Uh, and eventually what they came up with is that they kind of made this like big sleeping bag out of the seat covers, but also uh, they started pulling the insulation out of the plane, out of the plane kind of body, uh, and they used that insulation in the, in the sleeping bag, uh, which they eventually knew would be able to keep them warm overnight, which was very good. <laughs> so once they had figured that out, they were like, right, we've got a way of keeping warm. Uh, we'll take our rations of bodies. They put them in rugby socks and take that with them to 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 eat take uh, some metal sheets so they can melt some water uh, and then yeah they were ready to go and actually it was it's a bit of a weird time because of the 16 a lot of them didn't actually want to do that trip they they were weak they were tired they were scared and so it was actually kind of hard to to figure out who who should go but eventually three of them set off So the three that set off were Canessa and Parado, again, who went on that first trip uh, along with Vizintin. And they basically, they, when the plane had crashed, the pilot said where he thought they were. And based on where he thought they were, they they thought basically that they just had to climb up this like mountain to the side of them. And then once they got on top of the mountain, they basically like see a large, you know, like village or something on the other side that they could basically just walk down to. Uh, so they headed off to this mountain and managed somehow to scale it. But once they hit the top, they soon realised that actually their pilot had no idea where they were because once they reached the top, it, it, they were just surrounded by other mountains and they just were realised that actually they had no idea where they were uh, and they were very much kind of deep in the Andes, not really where they thought they would be. But they could kind of start to see where the snow kind of diminished. Uh, they could see a valley. And so they, they kind of had a vague idea of like, right, if we're going to walk somewhere, let's walk that way. At this point, uh, they decided to send 
uh, Byzantin back because he was the weakest and they knew that actually they'd probably be walking for a lot longer than they originally thought. So they needed his kind of portions of food uh, in order to, to make it as far as they needed. So he headed back uh, and Canessa and Parado uh, set off again, kind of down this giant mountain that they kind of basically slid down, it sounded like. But, I mean, the fact that they managed to do all of this and not just like die mountaineering is pretty impressive because we know that that's pretty dangerous. Um, and so they, yeah, they hiked for days and days and days. They actually hiked for almost 10 days. Uh, but they soon, after a few days, started to see signs of life. So they... The first thing they saw was like a soup can and they were like, oh my God, it's a soup can. That means like a person has been here. Uh, And then they found some cows. So they knew that there must be farmers around. Uh, And after nine days, they they finally found like a river uh, and they finally, it was getting a lot warmer. It was, they were kind of past the snow line. They were in trees, forest, all of that type of thing. So they knew, they knew they were getting there. But after nine days, they were just so exhausted. They basically just like collapsed out of exhaustion next to this river. And finally, they got some good luck. Uh, so finally, after where they kind of collapsed, they actually spotted three people on horseback across the river. Uh, and they kind of like screamed at them like, oh my God, like help us, help us, help us. Uh, and so the men across the river like went and got a piece of a paper and a pencil and a, and a stone and then kind of like threw it over the river to them to be like... Who are you? Write, write what you what you need. Uh, and so Parado grabbed it and wrote a note and he wrote, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We've been walking for 10 days. I have a, wound, a wounded friend up there. In the plain, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? It just shows like how desperate they were at that point, right? Um, and so the men read it and, and understood and they were like, okay. Um, and so they, they threw them some food, thankfully, threw them some bread that they could kind of start to eat. And they actually knew um, they'd heard of the plane crash. And so I haven't talked much about the uh, the search and rescue efforts other than the fact that they kind of started searching for them uh, and then stopped. Uh, and then they started again and then stopped. But anyway, um, one of the boy's dads had actually like gone off on like a total mission by himself to, to kind of canvas so many different villages and stuff in the area to see if any of them had, had sighted anything. And so the men that found them had remembered this, that, that this guy's dad had come and talked to them. And so they knew as soon as this happened that like, oh my God, this is actually legit. Like these people are actually alive. Uh, yeah, so they sent them food uh, and then the horse riders uh, headed off on a 10-hour horse ride uh, to, ra- to raise help. So they headed off to, to a bigger village uh, or somewhere that kind of had, had connections to the outside world to inform them that what happened. And so 72 days later, they finally, finally got some help and finally actually thought that they would be rescued, which is very exciting. And so, uh, yeah, they collected the boys, the two that were there, and they gave them lots more food and and put them to bed, that type of thing. And soon, once uh, help had been raised, uh, the Chilean Air Force flew in helicopters and uh, they tried to kind of direct them to where the the plane was, but not very successfully. So eventually, Perido got in the helicopter uh, and, and kind of took them took them to the where the wreckage was, uh, and they soon found it. Uh, and there's some great pictures out there of like the fuselage and all of the um, the men like standing outside it, like oh my, like just so excited. Um, and that's kind of like the first image of of when the helicopters found them. 
but it's just yeah like sheer joy which you can totally understand uh and i just yeah i imagine like perido in the in the helicopter be like yeah like we did it we did it um so that was very exciting for them but because of the terrain the kind of helicopters couldn't really land very well uh so they could only take half the survivors on that first trip uh, and they'd have to come back the next day uh, and so what happened was four search and rescue men came out of the helicopters and they stayed with the rest of the survivors overnight and kind of gave them care that type of thing gave them lots of food which was very good but it's actually interesting because they kind of said when previously obviously like when they started eating people they were kind of debating like should we clean up around because like basically where they were living it sounded like an absolute mess they just were kind of like eating bones just like throwing the bones outside and it was just yeah kind of everywhere uh, and so they kind of debated like should we clean it up and they, they decided not to and so then when these search and rescue men came down they started taking all these photos and the men were quite upset about them taking these photos but the search and rescuers kind of reassured them like no it's fine uh, they're just you know for the internal military use they're not going to be published anything like that and the men, uh, the men kind of like the survivors kind of trusted them in that. And they were like, okay, fine, you can take these pictures. Uh, what you may know now is that those photos were very, were, were not kept secret and were, were shared really widely. And one of them was very iconic, which you've probably seen. Um, and I was talking to someone on Instagram about this. Uh, there's a photo with like three of them kind of like sitting there, like really happy that they've been rescued. But next to them is just this like human spine um, that has been like picked clean. And so that just like brings it home. Like one, that they'd actually done it. Two, that they'd be obviously become so desensitized over time to it. And it just, it really became this, this kind of photo and this controversy. But yeah, I feel really bad for them because they were like, no, don't take these photos. And they did. So, yeah, the four search and rescue men uh, camped in a small tent nearby. And there's a good story about how the survivors wanted them to sleep in the fuselage with them. But actually, um, they had clearly become very accustomed to the smell. And so the, the search and rescue men were like, no, thank you. Um, and they, yeah, they slept nearby and kind of helped prepare a better helicopter landing site. Uh, so the helicopters come, could come in the next day and rescue them, which is very exciting. So they took all the survivors out at that point uh, and they flew them all to hospital. And actually the hospital was kind of prepared for like, oh, we're going to get these 16 men who are all going to be, you know, at death's door type thing. But actually, other than the fact that they were very undernourished, they'd all lost a lot of weight. They were actually all pretty, pretty okay. Um, they were basically just like, feed me, please feed me. And they started, the hospital staff were kind of like trying to give them like drips and stuff. And they were like, I just need actual food. Um, so that was, that was very good of them. And yeah, they were soon reunited with their families and, and yeah, very positive. But uh, what had happened since then uh, was uh, obviously this was like such a huge story in in South America at the time and around the world at the time, the fact that these people have been found alive. But obviously, as soon as they were found alive, the question was, well, how have you stayed alive? What what have you done? And originally, they kind of said like, oh, we, we had some like cheese that we ate or, you know, like they kind of made up like they didn't do anything. But eventually, you know, it kind of became very clear that they had uh, eaten, eaten people um, and they were... First of all, they had all these things about cannibalism, but actually, reading this, cannibalism is where you kill someone and eat them. But they obviously did not kill anyone. They just ate the dead people, which is called anthropophagy, uh, which is, yeah, very different. So 
not not they're not cannibals they were practicing anthropophagy and so yeah they basically admitted that this was the case uh, and at first there was a lot of debate about like how shocking this was and they were really judged by it um you know like how i couldn't believe that they'd done it uh, a lot of the family members of the other people were very upset and it was really i think probably a very difficult time for them though luckily the one place that didn't publish all this stuff was uruguay so they were they were okay to to go back but yeah i i think it's a, it's very hard for any of us to judge like what you would do in that situation uh, i think that until you are faced with like proper like starvation and this is your only choice in order to live i think a lot more people would do it than they originally think uh, and i did a, i did a poll on instagram like would you eat your dead friends as a last resort and and it was 60 40 so 60 percent of people said yes 40 percent said no uh which i think was probably a, a reasonable split as to what they originally had when they were deciding whether to do it or not um and then the 40 kind of 40 percent got, got convinced but i think it's just it, it's human instinct isn't it like when you are faced in that scenario you have you've got to do it like you've got to you've got to keep yourself alive and i think the the kind of like basic instinct of of living is just so strong that of, of course they did it what what else were they going to do very shocking and and obviously very hard for them to to be judged so heavily for him but eventually um the kind of religious sect uh kind of came out and said you know it wasn't it was it wasn't a sin. What they did was reasonable, uh, which very much helped the situation. Uh, and eventually a priest and some others went back to the site. Uh, they recovered all the bodies and the bones and they buried them nearby uh, in, a, in a small memorial uh, to kind of close it off. Uh, and they also burned the whole site. So they they put gasoline on, on the fuselage and, and everything that had been left there uh, and they burnt it all so that the, the site was no longer there and put up some other memorials around and you can actually go and visit it uh, now if you are hiking up in the andes um which is yeah very impressive so in terms of what we learned then uh we've learned lots of stuff obviously the the fact that this crash even happened uh was uh whoop, just wouldn't happen now because uh we have much more improved navigational systems I was going to say when I was writing about what we learned, I was like, well, now we have these really impressive beacons, which means that we can like find planes when they go missing. And then I was like, hmm, we've just done an episode in MH370 where that is not the case. Um, so I think we have somewhat better beacons and the ability to find planes now. Uh, but obviously we are not 100% effective on that. But yes, much, much better uh, since, the, since this event has happened. But really what I think what I learned from this um, was just like the impressive human spirit. I think it's such a it's such a story of survival and it's such a story of of kind of prevailing and and yeah, just doing so well that I just I think that's what we learned is that humans can do amazing things um, and that they can overcome and survive in, in scenarios where you never thought they could. Uh, and finally, uh, there was a good uh, quote from Knessa in an interview, uh, which I thought was was good in terms of what what we learned. And he said uh, that if you have if you have somewhere to sleep, if you have water to drink and decent food, you are lucky. Don't wait for your plane to crash to realize how lucky you are. Be more grateful for life. You can wait for the helicopter, but don't wait too long. 
I thought that was good. So yeah, that's what we should all learn from the story. It's, it's a bit of a bit of appreciation and gratitude, right? Uh, which we always always need more of. So yeah, an amazing, amazing story. That's what I mean. When I like heard, like I knew I'd heard about it, and I was like, oh yeah, they like crash night people, but I didn't realize like the avalanche, like all the things they had to do to survive, the fact that they the search got called off and they didn't heard about it, and then they had to walk out. Anyway, it's just all all very amazing. So in terms of references, if you want to hear more about this, I read the book Alive, which is by Piers Paul Reed, and that was written in the late 70s. It was it was based on, on interviews and stuff that he did with all of the survivors, and so it's a very matter-of-fact story about it all. He kind of says that he doesn't doesn't embellish because they didn't embellish when they told him. So uh, it's, it, it just tells you everything, basically, from start to finish. And it also covers the search uh, a lot more than I have covered. So I recommend that. Uh, I also, I haven't had a chance to read these yet, but I have bought them. Uh, but Parado, Canessa and Strouch, who was another survivor, also all wrote books uh, about it. And I've heard that they're really, really good. I've been recommended them quite a few times. Uh, so I will uh, definitely try and read those and, and report back in future if they, I'm sure they are very good. But yes, so there's, there's actual ones from those specific survivors, which I think will be very interesting. And they have been recently, it must be like an anniversary, right, of um, of when it was 72. 2022 must be 50 years, right? 82, 92, 2002, 2012, 2022. So it must be in 2012 for the 40th. They did a lot of interviews and I wouldn't be surprised if next year uh, in 2022 for the 50th anniversary, they do a lot of interviews as well. So there's a lot of kind of more recent material out there of, of reflections and stuff on it, which I think is very interesting. There's also quite a lot of movies and stuff about it as well. Uh, there was like a fictionalized movie also called Alive, uh, which I haven't watched, but I watched some clips of. It looks a little bit entertaining. Um, but there was a good documentary. Good, Goodish. It's a bit, it was a little bit cheesy again. A very informative documentary on YouTube uh, through the Wonder Network, which I will also link in the references if you fancy having a watch. Loads of stuff out there. There's also, I know, a very long podcast series which on this as well, which I should link. I also haven't listened to that, but people recommended that as well uh, when I started looking into it. So yes, lots and lots of references out there if you are interested in this story and you want to learn more. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, much appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram, like I said, at when it goes wrong pod, uh, or email me at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. I love getting your emails. It literally makes my day um, when I realize that someone has taken the time to actually send me an email. Uh, it makes all of this worth it because it is just a little on me doing this um, in my in my bedroom. And sometimes I feel like I'm talking into the void which is what I'm doing right now. Uh, so yeah, getting your feedback is always really appreciated. So I know I'm not just talking into the void. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening. 